You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's reading comes from Exodus 35, verses 4 through 21. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tans ram skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tents and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light, with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrance of incense and the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would fill our vision with Christ. We pray that we might see him and know him and love him and worship him and that you would make us more and more like him. Through the power of your word and by the work of your spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after the service. Uh, if I do know you and you've been within earshot of me within the last three or four weeks, you've likely been the, the target of my evangelism for the movie 1917. Uh, it's a war movie in the midst of, you're all chuckling because you've all made, I've all been badgering you to go see this movie. It's a, it's a World War I movie, which is like probably the most brutal and tragically despairing war in the history of mankind. Uh, so while the movie isn't particularly violent, uh, it, this movie's not for everyone. Uh, among other reasons, though, the camera work, the script, the acting, the score, the camera work, uh, the story is just captivating. There are two British soldiers. They are given one mission, and the success and the failure of this mission means the life or the death of 6,000 other of their countrymen, including the brother of one of these soldiers. And so from like three minutes into the movie, from the very beginning, in fact, if you've seen the trailer, you already know this, uh, you know what the entire movie is going to be about. The whole movie is about the singularity of this one mission. 
These two men certainly have wider cosmic significance in their life, but for about 14 hours or so of their life, these men seemingly exist for no other purpose but than to complete this one mission. There's something about war that does this to humans, that not only pulls soldiers on the field into a singularity of purpose, but entire nations. Total war is is a relatively new and novel concept in the history of humanity. For millennia, kings would like raise up an army for that time of the year, and they'd go and try to win a little bit more land for for their kingdom, and then they might lose a little bit next year, and we'll try to get a little bit more the next year, and it would be that time of year to go and expand or lose some of your kingdom. In fact, uh, lots of soldiers in these armies would die, and it would be a horrible time, but largely, things at home stayed unchanged, but not the same with countries who are participating, uh, certainly in the World Wars I and II. The whole country and any of these uh, participants was needed to pitch in, to pull their weight, to do their part. So in America and in other countries, there were steel and rubber drives. There was food rationing. There was sending crops overseas, buying war bonds, men and women working in war factories. Rosie the Riveter, we can do it. Yes, we can. The people of the entire country, not just the soldiers on the battlefield, are pulling in the same direction with a singular purpose and with a singular mission, to win and to bring an end to the war. Well, last week in Exodus 34, we saw that the grace and glory of God uh, transforms his people into an ideal humanity. We saw Moses acting as a stand-in mediator for the entire nation and, in fact, the entire world, for humanity, in which he is restored into humanity's original vocation, into humanity's original mission, to reflect the glory of God and to rule on his behalf in his glory and in his justice and peace as his image bearers. Despite the people's sin and rejection of God, God has, respond to, has responded to Israel here in grace and in mercy and in love and in faithfulness, and the covenant is renewed. So we saw the people are re-energized. They are re-energized with love for God because of his great love for them. And so if last week we saw that the grace and glory of God transforms his people into an ideal humanity, this week in Exodus 35, we're going to see that the grace and glory of God transforms his people into a generous humanity, a people with a singular purpose and mission. Just a heads up, the, the weekly email this week, and even your bulletin, if you see that on the back, says that we're going to get through Exodus 35 and 36 tonight. That ain't happening. Uh, <laughs> the plan was to think through the singularity of mission and purpose in, uh, the, in giving toward the mission of God and then serving toward the mission of God, but I don't want to shortchange these unbelievably important topics. Uh, now, because much of chapters 36 and through chapter 40 are a repetition of the tabernacle plans that we already saw in Exodus 25 through 31. In fact, much of what you just heard Aaron read about, we've already considered deeply through uh, chapters 25 and 31. Uh, I think it's possible that we might wrap up all of Exodus next week in chapters uh, 36 through 40. Maybe. Well, I'm not making any promises. Uh, and then, uh, before we begin uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians sometime in March, we're going to take a three or a four or five week um, interlude in thinking through and preaching through the first three or four or five psalms. This might just be a new tradition for us, to preach through a few psalms in between each book. Uh, but for tonight, 
we're going to think through the singularity of mission and in purpose in two halves, in that of Israel's giving and our giving. And as we go, I'm going to break down those two halves into some smaller subheadings. So let's think toward giving toward the mission of God. We have seen God save the people from slavery, slavery, redeem them, bring them up out of Egypt. This is what we've been thinking through over the past many, many months through this book of Exodus. They are on the way toward the land that God had promised, promised their distant father Abraham. God had covenanted himself to them, and then to Moses he gave the law and the plans for the tabernacle. But for now, God has just renewed the covenant, and Moses is finally finally passing along all that he has received from God and that we've thought through already. All that God would have them to be, all that God would have them do, and all that God would have them build. That God might move through these people, that his glory might fill the world, that he would live and dwell within their midst. But he will have the people work and participate. He will have them build this tabernacle. It's not that he just sends this like giant floating tabernacle down from heaven. Uh, I suppose he could have operated in this way. He could have just given the people a tabernacle. He could have even used this tabernacle as like a a Wizard of Oz type way of judging the Amalekites or something. And you got like always got to keep your head on the swivel because the the tabernacle might just fall and crush the Amalekites like the Wicked Witch of the East or something. But this is not what happens. Instead, Moses comes to the people and says in verse 4, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Let the people give towards this project, and then we'll see in the next week how they will build this project. The people are to bring gold, silver, bronze, yarns, linens, animal skins, oil, spices, precious stones, all that they own. And I'd like to just make three observations here about the nature of Israel's giving that hopefully we can see on a direct line of connection to our own hearts. First of all, that Israel's giving was voluntary. Whoever is of a generous heart, Moses says. And later, only those whose heart stirred within them, whose spirits moved them, uh, they gave. Meaning, there were some in Israel who were not of a generous heart and did not give. Some whose heart did not stir. These people didn't contribute. Now, I think we can assume that those who didn't contribute were actually missing out on something. And it wasn't commendable that they didn't contribute. But unlike the golden calf scene, God, or this text specifically, doesn't single out these people in judgment or in condemnation. These people didn't give, they weren't generous, and so therefore uh, Moses punished the people, or God sent a curse on them or something. They, don't, they aren't condemned for their lack of generosity. They just aren't commended for their generosity. This isn't a mandatory, mandatory tabernacle tax like there would later be in Jesus' day with a temple tax. In these first and early days toward the, the building of the tabernacle, there's no IRS agents, no audits to make sure that they are giving what they should give. There's no graduated uh, tax system or a flat tax system or tax theories. There's not even some kind of federal withholding on their paychecks or their crops or their flocks. Instead, Moses comes to the people and he essentially just says, all right, here's the deal. Like God has set us apart. He has set us apart from the nations and he is going to dwell with us in this mobile tent. He now wants us to build this tent If your heart is stirring, and if you would like to contribute towards its building, 
then give what you'd like. I've once read that Moses' strategy is a very, very terrible strategy for fundraising. If you are beginning any kind of a capital campaign, if you are raising investors for your startup, if you are putting on a big gala for your nonprofit, if, you, if you're a university and you are needing millions for a new building for, or a research lab or something, what do you do? You cannot, do not do what Moses did. You can't just say, hey, just give what you want. You will never raise enough. You will not meet your goal. You've got to throw in some incentives. You've got to get people to uh, commit to something over and beyond what they think that they might be able to give. You've got to throw in a return, a serious return on investment if you're raising investors. You've got to throw in some exciting door prizes, uh, some contests at a gala, good food, entertainment, some free drinks or something. They're not free, but you know. We'll even throw your name up on the, over the entrance of the building of this new research lab if you promise to give a million dollars. Maybe not your name over the entrance, but maybe a prominently displayed name somewhere around the entrance if you give 500,000. But we gotta, there's gotta be something in it for me, for me to give in that kind of way. But there are not any door prizes here. There are no cash returns here at the tabernacle. There are not names on walls of honor no diamond donors or platinum givers within like the Holy of Holies or something. Moses just says, give whatever you'd like. Merely a voluntary contribution toward those who desired to, or from those who desired to see the building and the construction of the tabernacle, which gets us to our second observation here. Israel's giving was voluntary, but Israel's giving was also responsive implied in Moses' speaking to the people about considering whether or not to give toward the tabernacle is a call to remember who they are. He doesn't say this, but I think it is just going in and throughout. Just a few short months ago, these people, this nation of people, are an entire nation of slaves. They are in slavery in Egypt. After 400 years in slavery, God had finally acted. He had judged their former masters, and he had freed his people toward life with him. But as we'll think through next week, God has called them not toward a life of freedom to just do whatever they want to do. It is not a freedom without constraints at all. It is a freedom toward service, in in God's service. He has called them from one service of compulsion to a new service of freedom under a new master who loves them. Now, anything that they have materially, all of this gold, all of this silver and bronze and linen and oil and precious stones, all that they have is because God has given it to them. A few months ago, they were slaves with nothing. Now they were a priestly kingdom with the very riches and the very wealth of the mightiest empire in the entire history of the early world. Israel has to understand that all that they have is grace. That if God is the creator of all things, and that God has no rivals, that when this wealth that they now presently own was the wealth of Egypt, it actually then too belonged to God and was given to Egypt to steward on his behalf. But they did not do so well. Egypt didn't. They used this enormous wealth to build temples to other gods. They used this wealth to make monuments to themselves. They used this wealth to raise huge armies to crush their rivals. But now that this wealth is in the hands of Israel, the question now 
comes to them. How will they steward it? Will they use it to build, not to build to worship false gods or worship themselves, but to use it to the proper worship of Yahweh? Will they use it not to grow in worldly esteem, but to care for the vulnerable in their midst? Understanding that they are Yahweh's third-party money managers. They are stewards of this gift that he has given them. And giving some of the things that God owns, and they are now as his stewards, now to give back to him. They are giving in response to his grace and in response to his bigness over all things. Everything on earth is God's, and he has chosen for some reason to give us this small tiny little piece of the pie, of the chart, the pie chart of wealth of the world, and he has given it to us, Israel. How will we steward it? How will we use it? He has given it to us by grace. So their giving was voluntary. Their giving was responsive to what he has done and how he has brought them out of slavery. And lastly, Israel's giving was cheerful. You'd think that this last point is unnecessary, That if their tabernacle contributions were voluntary and responsive, that of course they would be giving cheerfully. But that's just not true. If we consider our own hearts, we know this to not be true. If I'm an Israelite wandering in the desert, my name is like Jeriah or something, and I am finally free, I am finally with some level of personal wealth here of my own, I can understand that I should give some of this wealth back to the Lord. When Moses comes calling for this contribution to the temple, I realize that everything that I own has been given to me by God. I should give some of it back. No one is forcing me to, and what's more, I look around and all my neighbors are giving. There's some growing sense of social pressure around me to give. God will surely, I think, find my neighbor to be more acceptable than me because of how they're giving. I mean, like, look at my neighbor over here, like uh, Hananiah. He's over here, and he just gave this, like, huge sapphire to Aaron. What's with that guy? And then there's, like, Milka, the the wife of my friend Elkanah, and Milka, I don't know, yeah. Milka, she's, like, ever since we've been, uh, ever since we've left Egypt, she's been constantly weaving all of these fabrics and linens, reds and purples and blues. They're beautiful. She, not only are her kids really well-dressed and beautiful because of all of the clothes that she's able to, the fabrics that she's able to weave, uh, but she's actually starting to make a really good living selling some of these fabrics and linens to the rest of my neighbors. And then I see over there, um, Milka, she just gave like hundreds of pounds of linens to the tabernacle. They're going to like line the inside of the tabernacle with all these beautiful fabrics and linens. What if I don't give? My wife, she's not a weaver. My family, we don't have as much as Hananiah and Milka and Elkanah. We have plenty to live on. Our needs are met. And I know God has saved us. Surely God is happy with them and with Hananiah, and I want him to be happy with me. So here, Aaron, take this golden lampstand that we've had for a couple of weeks. We were really enjoying it. Uh, Here, take some oil too. Uh, It's been able to allow this lampstand to be able to provide some light in our tent. It's been really nice to have and just stinking take it. Whatever you need, melt it down, melt down the candlestick and like 
Overlay the bronze or overlay the, the, the altar with it. Whatever you want. God does not want this man's giving. He does not want Jariah's candlestick. Just keep it. Instead, he wants the people to come and to make contributions out of a generous and willing heart. Jariah, give because of what God has done for you. Because you desire to dedicate more of your resources in some small way that you might see more of his kingdom and his glory made on earth. Now, we aren't this guy in the desert. We are not Jariah or Hananiah or Milcah or Elkanah. We are not here in Albuquerque in 2020, the first generation of Israelites who have been charged with building this tabernacle. We are not an ethnic people in a geographic place with a physical building housing the very presence of God uh, devoted to his worship. So if all that's true, if we're not all of those things, who are we? For those of us who are Christians, we are a people across all time, of all kinds of ethnicities, across nations and continents. We are rich and we are poor. We are highly educated and not very educated. We are married. We are single. We are those with large families and small families. We are Jew and Gentile. We are politically conservative and politically liberal. But like Peter says, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness that into, and into his marvelous light. Once, Peter says, just like Israel, we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And yet, even though much of what Peter says about us could be said of Israel, our spiritual worship isn't necessarily toward the upkeep of a physical building because God has made his people now his very, the, 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 the tabernacle, the temple of his presence. It is in his people that he dwells now on this side of the cross, not within a building. And yet, again, as we'll think, or as we'll think more about next week, one of the most indispensable and vital things that we will do as his people is to gather over and over and over again in Exodus 35, even in, in verse 4, the people are called the congregation. Moses said to all the congregation, which is the exact same word that will later be translated and transliterated into Greek as the church. The church means the assembly, those who gather together, those who congregate, the congregation. God's people assemble together. They congregate as one body, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging each other all the more. And so a wonderful way for us to facilitate what we do, one of the very core things that we do together as a church, and again, the church means the congregation, the assembly, one of the core things that we will do together is to assemble. And so one of the very, uh, one of the most essential things that we can do is have a place to assemble. Now, as 21st century Americans, we are blessed to live in a time and a place where we can have buildings. And while many of you know we do not own this building, we are blessed to be able to use this building. Early Baptists uh, didn't call these buildings or buildings like them churches. They called them meeting houses. Because what the church does, what the church, the people, what they do is they meet. They meet in a meeting house. 
Now, obviously, a meeting house isn't required for a gathered church, but these buildings are beneficial tools for the building and for the equipping of the church. And buildings are a public presence to the city around us, that Christians are here, that, is, that God's worship is here, that God's love for you is here. And now while we don't own a building, we do pay rent here, which is a substantial allocation of our annual budget. Other parts of our budget go to printing, like in the bulletin that you have in front of you. Among other things, uh, we dedicate parts of our budget to software and subscriptions, uh, like Planning Center that nearly all of you use, the musicians on stage, uh, Christchurch Kids to get uh, our kids checked in and out. Some of our other budget lines go to website maintenance, which many of you found us through. A massive allocation of our budget goes uh, beyond our church and sending and sustaining all the faces and ministries uh, around the world that you see on this wall. Allocation of our budget goes towards church planting and church equipping internationally and locally towards local ministries of love and mercy and caring for the weak and the vulnerable. And while there are many other lines in our budget, a good chunk of it goes towards the support of Clint and me and towards our families allowing us to devote a full-time work week toward the building and the equipping of the church. Not the building and the equipping of this building, but the equipping and the building of the church, of the New Testament temple of God, the, the, the place in which God's presence dwells. And we couldn't be more thankful and overwhelmed by the generous giving of all of you in our first three years as a church. Uh, not only were we able to have two full-time pastors from the very get-go, but the ways in which we are able to just fire funds out towards those in the city and around the world and even to the internal needs of our body. Like, praise the Lord. If you don't ever, like, look inside that middle page of our bulletin just to see uh, the giving of our people, that is, that is, we put that there not as a way to uh, guilt you into giving more, but as a way to say, praise the Lord. We're like uh, five or so months into our fiscal year of giving, which starts August 1st, and we are already exceeding what we had budgeted for. Praise the Lord for the generosity of his people. There are even things that we would love to be moving towards someday in the future by way of future hires, by way of more programs and other things, not to just have more hires because a bigger staff is what you got to have and more programs is what you got to have as you grow as a church, but future hires and more programs for the building and the equipping of the body, for the building of the church. So while we are not Israel, these same principles of this Exodus 35 way of giving should absolutely still apply to us. These people were giving toward a building. We are giving towards a people. And so we might say, in the same way as Israel, our giving is voluntary. Unlike becoming a member at Costco or Amazon Prime or a local country club, there are no financial dues to become a member at Christ Church. You do not pay to become a member. Nor do we ask you how much you're going to give or we can expect you to give in 2020 or 2021 in order that we might plan a budget like many of the organizations that you are all a part of, because you have to do that as you're planning budgets elsewhere. In fact, we don't know at all who gives what. Many of you have interacted with Kendra. She is a former CPA. 
Uh, she's now a stay-at-home mom with four little kids, including three triplets. Uh, she's a member of another sister church in town, and she is the only person in existence on this planet uh, who knows who gives what. Uh, we, ha- we employ her for, the, for external accountability and uh, so that we, sinful as Clint and I and the elders are, uh, we, might tend, we might not tend toward partiality in knowing who gives what. We might treat those who might give some, who might give more, we might treat them differently and better and with more uh, deference than those who give less than that. So like Moses, we want to just stand up here and say from time to time, okay, here's the deal. God has set us apart from the nations that he might build us, that he might build us as a mobile tent. He now wants to build us this tent and he wants to build us and we, your pastors, we've got some ideas how. And if your heart is stirring and you'd like to contribute toward this mission, give what you'd like. So our giving is voluntary. And second, our giving is responsive. Like Israel, we, God's people, have been redeemed. We have been brought out of slavery. Once we were not a people, now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Our giving is a form of thankful gratitude, not as a way of back payment, like you are paying off a debt. Some of you took out school loans. When you took out a loan like this, a bank or some agency or some organization out there paid your university for your schooling. Once you were not educated, and now you are educated. Once you had not received a diploma, and now you have received a diploma. Only now, 10 to 20 years later, you are under the weight of paying off that debt. And you had better pay up every month, or else. That loan was not grace. It was a loan. And in fact, the people who paid that loan We're hoping to get something out of it. We're hoping to make some interest off of you. They weren't just giving you these funds out of the goodness and the benevolence of their heart. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is no loan. It requires no payback. In fact, you cannot. It is a payment in full. In a few minutes, we're going to sing this. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. Or if I were going to write a new verse, I might write, my worth is not in what I give, but what he gave that I may live. The Father's love that I may know at the cross. Now that he has redeemed his people, all that I had owned and possessed in slavery, All that I had before he knew me, before he saved me, all that I might have have previously had and used merely as monuments to myself or for self-worshipping entertainment just to pass the days along, now, considering myself his third-party money manager, he has redeemed those same possessions to be used for the building of his worship in building and equipping of these particular people and to love those around me in sacrificial generosity because of God's love and sacrificial generosity towards me at the cross. God does not need your money. He doesn't. He doesn't even want your money. He wants 
your heart. And yet, he knows that the doorway to your heart is often right through your wallet. Our generosity and the giving of our money and of our time and of other possessions should absolutely be a grateful measure of response. But then Jesus even flips that way of thinking and saying that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. God does not want a bunch of Jeriahs who begrudgingly give their candlesticks and their oil because he has to. But Jesus is saying that, you know what? If you'd like to see your heart love God, where your treasure, what your treasure is, your heart is going to follow in that direction. You want to care less about money? You want to care less about possessions and stuff? Which Jesus has a ton to say about. He says more about money than heaven and hell combined because he knows that our love of money may just be the thing that keeps us from heaven because it is money that we are trusting all along and not Jesus. So, do you want to care less about money and security? you want to love Jesus more? Well, Jesus says, decide to be radically generous. Now, hear me well here. What I am not saying is that you should become foolishly reckless with your money so that you aren't able to live in wise preparation. The ant is commended over and over and over again in the Scriptures, especially in the Proverbs. That is the insect, the ant, for the way that the ant works and prepares, and stores, and saves. Nor am I here here saying that we can't or shouldn't ever buy nice things. But why are we buying nice things? Why? Why do we have this impulse to buy more and nicer and better? Is it because the quality of these nice things are more likely to last longer than the quality of something that is cheap? Perhaps. That might be a good motivation. Is it because that we want to be able to use these things to bless in generosity those around us? Or if we were to just probe the depths of our heart, would we find that we want to just buy more and nicer and better just for personal comfort and for personal status? In World War I and in World War II, entire countries came together with singular focus with their vocations, with their production, with their economy. How much more important is the mission that God has given to his people? That he has given to us, that he has set us apart to be a local conduit of glory and of grace to the world around us, that we might see the end of the war. Most of you have heard us say this before in the membership class or elsewhere, but does your generosity, does your generosity in time in in financial giving toward your local church and in time and in financial giving to the world around you, does it actually cost you something? Or is your generosity merely coming from the excess margins in your life and in your budget? The New Testament model of giving is not that of a 10% tithe. New Testament, the the word tithe does not appear. The New Testament model of giving is not tithe, but the New Testament model is of generosity. Does your giving, because of your overwhelming, responsive, and voluntary generosity, does it actually pinch 
a little bit in your budget so that you feel it? Are there things that in faith you are saying, you know what? There are things this month, there are things this year that I'm now going to not be able to do. With. I'm not going to forego these things. I'm not going to have these experiences or whatever they are. But for the good of the church and for the expansion of the kingdom of Christ, I am going to forgo these things. And notice I did not say, in faith, I'll give this money with the expectation that God is going to repay more later. That kind of teaching of material prosperity is totally counter to the comprehensive teaching of the Bible. If that's our way of thinking, then we are not giving to God. We are not giving him our heart to receive greater joy and contentment in him. We are giving to God so that we actually might get more stuff, more of me. We're giving to ourselves. Your increased generosity will actually mean less stuff, less money, not more. But our white-knuckled death grip that we have on our stuff will more and more begin to loosen and then find fixed and satisfied attachment to Christ. And we get Jesus himself as we loosen our grip on the things that we think will save us and give us comfort and security. So our giving is voluntary. Our giving is responsive. And then finally, our giving is cheerful. Perhaps with Exodus 35 on his mind, Paul gives a great summary of this whole passage in 2 Corinthians 9 when he is encouraging the wealthy Corinthians to give toward the poor and the starving in Jerusalem. And he says, listen to this, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, voluntary, not reluctantly or under compulsion, responsibly. For God loves a cheerful giver. Like our Israelite guy, Jariah, in the desert, we can think, well, I know that Christians are supposed to give to a church. That's what they're supposed to do. I think I've read or heard something about tithing, so I guess I should. God will probably be unhappy with me this month or this year if I don't. And Sherman just said that I should give enough to feel the pinch, so I guess I'll give enough to just experience pain. <laughs> and, le and let's be honest. My giving could go to the church or it could go to the government. So I'd rather it go to the church. So just here, Christ Church, take my money. No, 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 and no. Even if we decide to give a little bit more to experience the loss of some things, we do it for the expectation of greater joy and for greater contentment, not just pain. God loves a cheerful giver. So I didn't have a great place in the sermon to add a couple of practical notes, so I'm just going to tack them on here. Number one, uh, there's a lot of students here growing and uh, the amount of students at UNM. Praise the Lord, we're glad that you're here. Uh, you don't have the salary that you think that you, or that you hope for someday. Maybe you're even out of school. You're in your mid-20s, you're perhaps in, even in your 30s, and you don't have the dream job that you hope to have. You don't have the income that you one day hope to have. Start giving now. When I was a college student, I made next to nothing, and I gave next to nothing. And praise the Lord, I married a wife who was generous and could break these long-standing habits and patterns in my heart. 
Begin training your hearts now. It is not the quantity of your money and your giving, but it is the quality. Listen, you're a college student. Maybe this semester you make $100. We don't need your money. Uh, The amount of money that you're going to be able to give us out of that $100 is next to nothing. So in that sense, we do not need your money, but we need your heart. We need your generosity. We need the the giving of sacrificial generosity that you are training your heart to then begin walking into for the rest of your life. If you wait until you are in a place of complete financial security to begin giving, you will never begin giving because our culture tells you that you will never be in a place of complete financial security. Second, we we say in the membership class that if you tend toward treating your giving toward Christ Church like you do your mortgage or your P&M bill or Netflix, then we would rather that you give in this little box over here, that you feel the giving of cash or the writing and tearing of a check that goes in this box, to feel and see the reality of this as a form of your worship as unto the Lord rather than a monthly bill. But if giving is irregular, if giving becomes forgettable, perhaps setting up a recurring giving online as a form of cultivating discipline in your life, cultivating generosity in your life is a better move. God wants your heart and not your money. And then lastly and related, we've mentioned this before, uh, but if you have a recurring giving set up online, would you consider, would you consider doing that not by way of credit card, uh, but by way of an online or a, a, a draft, an auto draft from your bank account. You get those credit card points every year, and it is awesome when you get those credit card points every year. Your giving to Christchurch just got you a Southwest flight to anywhere in the continental U.S. for free! Only it wasn't for free. Uh, we paid for, for it. Uh, I asked Kendra this week how much we paid in credit card uh, fees this year. If you give $100 to Christchurch this year on your MasterCard, uh, we have to pay MasterCard 3% of that. And Kendra tells me uh, that in, 20, in 2019, she paid out $5,743.59 in credit card fees. That is $5,700 that could be used toward the building and the equipping of this church. So just consider. I'm Moses up here just saying, do what you like. Uh, <laughs> If you're visiting, if you are visiting with us here tonight, you may be thinking, I've got this church pegged. <laughs> uh, it's my first time here, and these American churches, it's just one giant fundraiser after another. They just, I show up every now and then, and they just always want my wallet. But this was not a sermon intended to create guilt, and this is not a sermon intended to get your money. There's absolutely no ask here, and we are not buttering you up. Mostly, this is a sermon of commendation for the way in which God has moved in so many hearts in this room. But when texts in the Bible on money and generosity come up, we want to grab them full on and deal with them. And then not apologize for it, because it is such an importantly vital part of our discipleship. Our neglect of thinking about money as so importantly vital to our discipleship may just be our spiritual undoing. 
of our becoming more and more like Jesus, though, who did not look only to his own interest, but to the interest of others, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Might we know the power of the resurrection, even walk more nearly with him in what we worship, in what we value, and with singularity of mission as this church, singularity of mission with our whole heart, with our whole strength, with our whole mind, with our whole budget, might we know the power of Christ in his death and his resurrection. Let's pray that he would help us. Our Father, we are so thankful for the way in which you have redeemed us out of our sins, the bondage of our self-worship. We pray that you would indeed not just be here to baptize our hearts, but that you would be here to baptize and transform our entire being, which includes our wallets, which includes our budgets. Might we love you with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, together individually and as a church. Might we treasure the things that you treasure. Might we begin to value more and more the things that you value. Might we love others sacrificially. We pray that you would bless our efforts. We pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment in how we formulate um, our budget every year and the way in which we allocate some dollars towards some things and other dollars towards other things. Might every single penny in this budget be about your worship, be about your glory and your kingdom being made more known on earth as it already is in heaven. Thank you, God, for saving us, for redeeming us, and for now giving us small, some small part to participate in the building of your church. We pray that we would continue to be faithful as we do until Jesus returns. And even so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.